Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. And this is an amazing chapter. What we have is we have the account of the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has spent... He reigned for 43 years in total. He spent the first 30 years of his reign conquering other lands. So for 30 years, he conquered other lands. And then for the the last 13 years, there was the building of Jerusalem. uh, uh, I'm sorry, of Babylon. The building of Babylon where he really expanded it, except there was a seven-year gap in that 13-year period. And... uh, um, and so, so it's during this seven-year period that, that uh, the Lord is deeply working on his heart where he comes to salvation. Daniel and the testimony of his three friends had been a testimony to him that he never really responded to. He saw the power of God in Daniel. He saw Daniel's ability to not only interpret dreams, but to tell him what the dreams were. He saw Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego standing in the fire with one that he described as looks like the the son of the gods in there with them. He saw them walk out of the fire. It still did not bring about his conversion. And so things happen in lives where God impresses himself upon us. God will work in our lives and continue to impress himself upon us. But if we continue to go on without receiving him, Sometimes things happen that are all the more intense, and that's what's happening here. So in Daniel chapter 4, we'll read from verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High has done for me. How great are his signs, how mightier his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. So in this portion, He has, in in verses 1 through 3, He has already been converted. He has already given His life over to, to this God of Israel. That's what's already taken place. That's something that's already been done at this point. And... It's interesting that Daniel is recording this, so maybe Nebuchadnezzar was was dictating this to him, or Daniel took it from another document. Uh, But Nebuchadnezzar is making this proclamation, and in verses 1 through 3, he's already been converted. But now what he's going to do is he's going to give his testimony. He's going to say what was happening prior to his conversion. So here's the story that he tells. So starting from verse 4... He's accounting for his life prior to his conversion. He says, this is what it was like before I was saved. Let me tell you my story of how I came to faith. And now he's telling his story. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and visions in my mind, kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief 
of the magicians. Since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Okay, so, what's happening here is he has this dream, and the dream is not just some ordinary little dream. It says that he was at ease in his house, and he was flourishing in his palace. This man had everything going for him. Remember, 30 years of conquering different lands. Now he enters into a period where he's building up Babylon. Babylon was a magnificent city. It was 15 miles square. That is a very large city. If you think of the old city of Jerusalem, the old city of Jerusalem is about a third the size of the Rice University campus. Tiny little thing. This city was 15 miles by 15 miles. It had a population of 1.2 million. That is huge in that day. Population of 1.2 million. The walls are said to have been 350 feet high. That's like 35 stories high. Now, there's some people that have questioned that and also 80 feet thick. So 350 feet high and 80 feet wide. Uh, others have said at the tops of the walls, so that was at the base of the tops of the walls, you could ride three chariots side by side. Huge city. It had 12 gates. What is for sure uh, uh, is that the river Euphrates ran through the city. Right through the city, the river Euphrates ran. So they built that city in the walls with its 12 gates across the river Euphrates. And uh, so it was a magnificent city. And here he's sitting in this city and he's getting, he, he has this dream and it made him fearful. Here's a man who runs the entire earth. You know, the strongest man on earth, the man who dominates everything. And he's becoming fearful because of his dreams. Now remember, in other cultures, they take dreams very seriously. In the American culture, we don't take dreams very seriously. So God tends not to speak to us in dreams because... We, we, we have trouble discerning it, and so he often works within cultures. You see this. For example, in Luke chapter 7, there's a woman who is anointing Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair. That is something that would not go over very well in our culture. And, and, uh, but in their culture, there was this anointing of the feet and the washing of the feet. God seems to work often within cultures. If you go to other cultures today... There are other cultures that take very seriously dreams. In, in the Islamic world, they take very seriously dreams. And you'll often hear when a Muslim comes to faith in believing that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God and Lord, you will see that often God spoke to them through a dream. So there are cultures that take dreams very seriously and God speaks to them in dreams. This is what was happening and this dream made him fearful. And the fantasies as I lay on my bed and my visions in my mind kept alarming me. So here's this great king, frightened. So he bring, gives orders to bring in all the wise men. And again, they don't right away bring in Daniel and none of them could interpret the dream. So then he brings in Daniel. He remembers, well, he, I remember that guy, Daniel. Just bring in Daniel. He'll, he'll interpret it for him. And so then he begins to relate what, what he saw in verse 10. He saw a great tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. And then he goes on. So he's describing his dream. He says, The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. 
and it was visible to the ends of the earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the vision in my mind and as I lay on my bed and behold an angelic watcher, a holy one descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit and let the beast, of the, and let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Let the stump and its roots in the ground, yet leave its stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed to that of an, uh, changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This is the sentence, and is decreed by an angelic watcher. And the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes. He sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, Tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So it's an interesting dream. So he talks about this tree and he talks about how all the beasts of the field, everything can feed upon this tree. He had dominance over the earth and Babylon... Babylon the Great was, was master of all the earth and there were prophecies as we've already covered and already read in the Bible that nobody would ever be able to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar. So God had given all this to him. And it's interesting as he starts describing this, he talks about the tree grew, its height was great, and, and he goes on and on. And then he says, he, says um, he starts describing how the tree would be cut down but a band of iron would be put around its stump. And a band of iron is put around a stump to preserve a stump so that it doesn't get waterlogged and decay. So that he's going to preserve this stump with this band of iron. And then he talks about the new grass. Now, all of a sudden, in, in, verse, in verse 15, there's a jump here. It says, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground. So he's talking about a tree. tree is cut down. It becomes a stump. Now, look at the change. All of a sudden, it says... In, in the last half of, of verse 15, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. He's talking about a tree. Boom. He changes to third person. He's talking about him. He goes from talking about a tree to speaking in the third person about speaking about this is what's going to happen to him. He's no longer speaking about a tree. He says, you were this tree. Then all of a sudden, he says that he's going to all of a sudden lose the mind of a man, take on the mind of an animal. He's going to be uh, uh, among the grass and, and, and eating, eating the grass. And so this is, this is, this is what he says. And so now, now he says to, to Daniel, who he calls Belteshazzar. So Daniel, when Daniel refers to himself, he calls himself Daniel. When 
the people from, from Babylon refer to him. They, called the, they call him Belteshazzar, the name that was given to him, the Babylonian name that was given to him. And he says, you are to speak for the holy God, is it, the, the, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So again, while he's recounting this, he is still very much polytheistic, Nebuchadnezzar is. Now, it says in verse 19, then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, you see, so Daniel says, look, I'm Daniel, but my na- they call me Belteshazzar. He's making that clear again. He hasn't forgotten his origin. Daniel meaning uh, uh, God is my judge, whereas Belteshazzar is the name of one of the Babylonian gods. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dreamer's interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. So Daniel hears this dream and all of a sudden he's appalled for some time. And his thoughts alarmed him. And he couldn't speak. It was so shocking to him because he knows what this word means. He immediately understands what this dream means and it shocks him. And Belteshazzar, being a cocky king, like a CEO, he says, just don't let it alarm you, just tell me what it means. Feeling that he is impenetrable. Nothing could really affect him. I mean, he's king of Babylon. What could affect him? And Daniel says, Belteshazzar replies, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Isn't that interesting? Daniel really liked King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I wish that this dream applied to your adversaries and to those who hate you, not to you. Here is this king, remember we had seen several times he would rashly proclaim, anybody who doesn't do such and such, they're going to be torn limb from limb and their homes will be made into a rubbish heap. At the word of his command, he could have three men thrown into a a fire. And a number of his soldiers get burned up in that fire. It doesn't faze him a bit. We know we're going to learn from Daniel chapter 5 that Nebuchadnezzar, whoever he wanted to live would live, whoever he wanted to die would die. Daniel liked him. Daniel viewed him as one whom he cared for. Isn't it interesting that the way Daniel viewed this person is very different than how you and I might view this person in in a common situation. This is the man who was responsible for the defeat of Jerusalem in three different ways. Thousands upon thousands of people died in those onslaughts in Jerusalem. The ones that did not die, he took into captivity. In an instant, he could say, oh, I've decided to kill all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel happened to be among them with his three friends until God interceded and gave Daniel the answer to the dream. Yet he liked this man. You know, it's interesting the way we might feel about certain people, about certain mean people, about certain politicians, about our enemies, and how Daniel viewed them. Remember, if God hates 
your enemy like you hate them, then you have succeeded in making God in your image. God has a very different perspective than what we have. Daniel walking as one in faith, one in a relationship with God, he liked King Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't wish harm to come upon him. He cared for him. The New Testament, as we read, tells us in in, uh, uh, Romans chapter 13, the beginning of Romans chapter 13, that we are to honor authority. We are to honor governmental authorities. And they were under Rome at the time. And so it shows you our response, whether we agree politically with certain politicians, we are not to hate them. This is the life of Daniel. This is the life of the believer. We are called to be something different. We may disagree politically. I'm sure Daniel didn't agree with all that Nebuchadnezzar did. But there was a love for this man that was really quite unusual. He didn't wish harm upon him. So Nebuchadnezzar tells him, go ahead and tell me the dream. So he goes ahead and and gives the interpretation. He says in verse 20, the dream that you saw, which became the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that you saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass. This is the interpretation, O king, And this is the decree of the Most High. Let me just stop here and say, this is not an easy interpretation to give. You're saying to the king who's commanding all the known earth at that time, you're saying to the king who at a a whim would have people torn limb from limb, and you're about to proclaim to him his utter destruction. There may have been a reason why the other conjurers and magicians didn't want to give the interpretation. Nonetheless, Daniel is going to give this interpretation, as hard as the word is. He says, he says uh, in verse 24, This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. And you will be given grass to eat like the cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and He bestows it on whomever He wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you, after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O King, may my advice to you be pleasing. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in that there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So this is what Daniel says. He says, for seven periods of time, in the book of Daniel, a period of time is a year. 
And we see this in, in, other account, in, in other portions of Daniel. So he says, for seven years, something is going to come upon you where you are going to be driven away from mankind. You're going to eat grass like cattle. And this is what he proclaims to him. Now, there are writings... There are writings that further substantiate this. So long after the book of Daniel was was written, other writings were found. And uh, uh, some of the writings from Babylon, and the Babylonians were great at documenting things. He says, uh, um, uh, there are writings from Babylon, several of them. One of them says that that, that, uh, he was oppressed by some god that made him insane talking about King Nebuchadnezzar. Another one said that it occurred to him while he was in the palace, another, uh, on the palace roof. Another one says that he disappeared for a period. Another one says that it was near the end of his reign. He went into a depression for seven years in which he, made, he performed no royal duties. It is spot on with what the Bible proclaims. And these were writings that were found in Babylon much later. Now, 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 Nebuchadnezzar was very good at having things documented. And Nebuchadnezzar was an amazing king. Every brick in Babylon bore his name. They have found very few bricks in Babylon that don't bear the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. He had every brick had his name written in, into it, had his name named embossed in that brick. So this was a man, a great builder, and so he, he proclaims this. And then we see in verse 28, the vision is fulfilled. Verse 28, And this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, while he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence, by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? So let's just stop there a minute. This is a proclamation that he is giving and he's talking about his own palace. He's talking about the greatness of his own palace. And there are other inscriptions that they have found that quoting Nebuchadnezzar where he says something really quite similar where he starts praising his own palace and praising what he, what he had built. Here's, here's an inscription that they found that's translated this. It says, In Babylon, my dear city, which I love, was the palace the house of wonder of the people, the bond of the land, the brilliant place, the abode of the majesty in Babylon. That is what Nebuchadnezzar, other inscriptions have been found, non-biblical inscriptions that are just spot on with this description. So he's on the roof of his house and he's starting to proclaim this. It says in verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled He was driven away from mankind and he began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High 
and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. So we're going to stop there. And it says, it says that, so Nebuchadnezzar was, was driven away from mankind, and he ate, oc- he, he ate grass like cattle. There is a, a disorder, it's called boanthropy, where a human being thinks that they are an ox, and they eat grass. So that is a known disorder. It seems very much like he had that disorder. It says his hair grew like, like feathers, were clumped together. His nails were like eagles, were, were like birds' uh, claws, so they were never cut. For seven years, this happened. So you have this dignified man falling from grace. What did Daniel say to him? Daniel had said to him, given him some advice in verse 27. He says, Therefore, O king, may my advice to you be pleasing. He says, Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness. What he's doing is he's calling him to repentance. Break away from your sins and do righteousness. The righteous act is... Remember, in in Isaiah 43, there were two things that a person had to do to be saved. They had to recognize that the King Jehovah, God Jehovah, the God of Israel, was the only God. And secondly, that there was salvation only in Him. Isaiah 43, 10-12. That He is King and there is salvation only in Him. He says, you are to do righteousness, turn away from your sins, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. You are going to demonstrate your faith by showing mercy to the poor. Obviously, this is something that Nebuchadnezzar lacked. He did not show mercy to the poor. If he had been showing mercy to the poor, Daniel would not have said, show mercy to the poor. He says, may my, may my advice to you be this, that you, you turn away from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. And this is sure in Scripture. Once the prophecy is given as to what is going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, it was going to take place. You couldn't stop it. But when it was going to take place, he says you can prolong your kingdom, you can extend this thing if you will repent and start turning around. Nebuchadnezzar never did. But we see the same sort of thing. There was a man named Ahab who was terribly wicked. And God proclaimed a prophecy upon Ahab how he would destroy him and, and, uh, uh, but then, and how he would destroy the kingdom from under him. But then it says Ahab, who had been wicked, repented. And he walked around in sackcloth, which was a, which was a sign of repentance. And God sent the prophet and said, do you, do you see? Look at Ahab. He's repenting. He says, so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to bring about this tragedy in his day. It's going to happen to his descendants after him, but not in his day. So God has a tendency to prolong things. He can make a proclamation that's never going to change. There is a similarity with us. There is something similar with us. And I want to, want to close on this thought. And I want you to turn to, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because this is, this is not too different from us, what he calls us to. So what Daniel had called, so turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and Daniel had called Nebuchadnezzar to a place where he would do righteousness. In other words, that he would turn from his sin, and in our terminology, get saved, and that he would start doing the proper acts. That he would start recognizing 
that he has not been merciful to the poor and he starts doing good works by doing merciful things to the poor. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this is the portion where he is speaking, where, where, where Paul is speaking to believers what is our responsibility as believers. He says in verse 20, 23, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So this is why when we take the Lord's Supper, I say that this is for the believer. If you're not a a believer, don't partake of it. But if you are a believer, there should be nothing stopping you from partaking of it. If there is some sin in your life, you need to deal with it at that moment. Because he says in verse 28, But let a man examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason among you, there are among you weak and sick, there are many among you weak and sick and a number sleep. So what he is saying, what Paul is saying, remember, sleep is death of the believer in the New Testament. We've seen this over and over again. Sleep is the death of the believer. He says, for this reason, because people have partaken of the Lord's Supper, without examining themselves, or they have refused to take of the Lord's Supper, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Some have even died. They're still in Christ. They haven't lost their salvation, but they've died because they've not not gone through this examination. Many of us, he says, many among you are weak and sick. In other words, weak both physically and spiritually, weak and sick and a number sleep. He says, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Then he says, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Huh? How does that make any sense? When you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let them eat at home. That would be like my inviting you over for lunch and saying, please come over for lunch. But if you're hungry, stop at McDonald's on the way so that when you come for lunch, you don't come hungry. This is obviously saying that the Lord's Supper is not just a fellowship meal. It is something distinct from the meal itself. That is the only way you can rationalize what he he has said. It is not merely a fellowship meal. It is a portion of a meal, but distinct from it. He says that so that you don't come together for judgment. And so he he says back up in verse 31, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we will not be judged. So we are to judge ourselves. I am to look at myself and examine myself. And to say, Lord, is there something in me 
Is there some sin in my life that I am partaking in that is making me weak and sick? That could lead to my physical death? May I deal with it with you? And then he says, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Well, what is this judgment? This judgment is not the great white throne judgment where we are being judged whether we are going to go into heaven or hell. It's not that judgment. The believer has already been transferred. Their, their, their eternity is sure to be with God. He says, but when you are judged, you are disciplined by the Lord so that you will not be condemned along with the world. So do you see that the it, judgment in this case, he's talking about discipline. That discipline keeps us from undergoing the judgment that the world is undergoing. He disciplines us. So the implication here is that you will not be judged. You will not be disciplined. In other words, did you know you can even avoid discipline? You can even avoid being disciplined if you repent. Or you can lessen that discipline. So, there are things in our life that the Holy Spirit reveals to us. And if we are quick to repent of it, that act of repentance, that act of giving our heart, turning over our heart, can delay or negate the discipline that was come because the discipline is to teach us. The discipline is to teach us, but if we've already dealt with it, the issue's already been dealt with. Now, that doesn't resolve everything. So say a man should, should, uh, should cheat on his wife. And he says, well, you know, I've repented of that. Well, there's going to be a whole lot of things that you've got to work through in your marriage that are going to be really horrid that you're going to have to work through now. So it doesn't, doesn't get us clear of everything, but there are things that it will help. It will delay many things that may normally have occurred or do away with many things. And so what he's doing is he gives us an opportunity in the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, to examine our hearts and this is why he gives us this. And he says that they used to meet together on the first day of the week for the breaking of bread. In their breaking of bread, they would take the Lord's Supper as a distinct event within that. And this is something that we should do as believers, constantly examining our hearts. Because if we don't deal with these things, there is discipline that comes upon us. The Bible calls it judgment. In this case, he says that the judgment is not this, this being condemned with the world judgment. The judgment is the discipline that's going to be dropped upon you for your actions. So we deal with it. This is why it's so important to have an open heart. Did you know very few believers understand this? Very few believers understand this. Because they've never dealt with this portion. When we come before the Lord and give our hearts to the Lord, we can deal with lots of things that would normally bring great discipline upon our lives. And it keeps us from being weak and sick and dying. This, it says, is why there are so many people. It says, for this reason, many among you. That means within the church, within the body of Christ, there are many where there is no substantial difference between their lives and the lives of the people of the world. You look at the, why is this, why, these people are Christians. Why do they do this? Why do they say this? Why are they doing these sort of things? Well, maybe it's because they have never taken the time to judge themselves rightly in the Lord's Supper. 
and to say, Lord, search my heart. It will make you very weak. You want to get separated from God? You start sinning. It'll separate you from God. It really will. Not an eternal separation, but you will see yourself becoming very much like the world. And all of us have experienced that. When I neglect my time in the Word of God, I become very ugly to myself. I don't need my wife to point it out, but she points it out anyway. I know it myself. I mean, the first one to recognize this is me. How I start becoming, complaining about everything. Oh, the traffic, the weather, this, everything is that I'm complaining about. And I know that something is happening. I'm becoming weak and I'm becoming sick. Spiritually weak and sick. This is what it says. It says that if you don't do this, this is going to happen. And this is why many among us, you say, well, why this person says they're a Christian, but look at what they do. Yeah, because they're not judging their body rightly. If they would judge themselves rightly, they don't have to be judged because they're repenting on a, daily, on, on a, on a continual basis before the Lord, saying, Lord, deal with, deal with me. And Daniel puts it, he says, you're going to have to start doing righteous acts. In, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, it talks about how God saves us And He saves us in order to do good works. The result of salvation is to cause us to do good works. In every other religion, you do good works in order to get saved. Somehow you think that if your good works outweigh your bad works, somehow you'll get to heaven. Not in Christianity. That is a lie, Christianity says. You cannot get to heaven on your own. You get saved, and once He saves you by His grace, then He says, now go and do good works. Good works are a manifestation of salvation. This is what Daniel's talking about. Once you do the righteous thing and come to the Lord, then let this be shown through your good works by showing mercy to the poor because you've been particularly hard upon the poor. There are things in our life that He will call us to. So when we repent and we say, Lord, I am sorry for doing this, then He is going to call us to certain things that's going to change our attitude. That's why the Lord's Supper is important. These are things that He calls us to. Let's pray. Abba Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for what You've placed in it. And Lord, may we learn from the life of Nebuchadnezzar how that man came to a knowledge of You. Father, I pray for those here who do not know You that You would draw them to Jesus, that You would keep them from the destructive path that they are on, that they would give their hearts to You. Father, save their souls, I pray. And Lord, for the believers here, Lord, I pray that You would teach us to come before You, to give our hearts to You, to give our minds and our thoughts to You. Father, pour out Your grace upon our lives, I pray. Pour out Your grace on us. In the name of Jesus. Amen.